Well, let's pray one more time together as we consider the word of the Lord. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us and showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us through the word that we've just heard and empowered by your Spirit, illuminate it to us so that we can make sense of it and equip us for every good work for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, uh, one thing that I love watching more than TV series at the end of a busy week is actually movie series. Given the option between TV series and movie series, I always pick for movie series. Uh, the Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and of course my favourite, which is on the screen over here, Toy Stories. To Toy Story. And why do I love movie series? Well, it offers closure. Closure on the many storylines that it has touched on in the first film. But through a trilogy, through multiple films, we get to find out the ending of some storylines when we're longing for answers for. Because in movie series, we get to learn who Gollum really was. We get to know that Darth Vader, finish the sentence, really is Luke's father. Thank you, Lucy at the front here. Spoilers alert, of course. Uh, and finally, that Woody and Bo Peep do finally get to live happily ever after in Toy Story 4. It's incredible to get some closure on storylines. And bringing it closer to home and more seriously, in the many storylines that we inhabit in our life, we too are longing for closure. And quite often the words that come out of the Christian mouth is, How long, Lord? Perhaps you have found yourself waiting longing, saying those words, calling out to God, how long, Lord, dot, 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 until my body is better, until the current work crisis is over, until the downtrodden are lifted up, how long, Lord? And one that comes to mind, I think, most often, but perhaps we're not willing to say quite as loud, is how long, Lord, until the wicked are punished for their evil deeds. Have you thought about that recently? I have. Uh, it doesn't take too long to stroll through the news to see the evil in this world going seemingly unpunished, even to see the evil doer prosper in this life. How long, Lord? We are waiting for closure. And likewise, in the book of Esther, that, which I've sort of slowly preached through over the last month or, or two when Dave has been away, uh, we find ourselves wanting closure to the many storylines that have popped up in the first four chapters. Uh, if you've missed those other sermons, feel free, as I said at the start, to check out our podcast for what we've preached on previously. But by way of brief recap, uh, in, Esther's, in Esther chapter 1 to 4, the many storylines that we've seen pop up well, they include, firstly, uh, King Asherus, uh, whose Greek name is actually King Xerxes, and that's easier for me to say, so I'm going to say King Xerxes for the rest of the sermon. Uh, he kicked out the queen that he had because she didn't want to go to his party. Uh, second, we saw all these coincidences that taught us about God's providence. Though he is never mentioned in the book of Esther, not the Lord, not Yahweh, not nothing, 
And all these coincidences led Esther, a Jewish beautiful girl, to be queen in the empty space in the monarch. Uh, third, there was a guy called Mordecai who always seemed to be at the right place at the right time. And he was introduced as a descendant of King Saul, which sort of ding, 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 sounded interesting, but nothing's really happened yet with that storyline. Uh, fourth, there was Haman, who was introduced as a descendant of the Amalekites. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Amalekites are God's sort of enemy in the Old Testament, which you can read about earlier in the Bible. It's all interesting storylines, isn't it? And lastly, we heard last time in chapter 3, verse 13, Haman had an evil plan. His plan was to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. Now, this is a massive threat to God's people. And every time in the Old Testament we see a threat towards God's people, it really raises the temperature because God has made big promises to the Jewish people. If the Jewish people are annihilated, what happens to God's plans and purposes to raise from them the King of Kings? Many storylines are unfinished, but tonight, hopefully we'll get some closure on those many storylines. It's helpful to keep your Bible open. We're going to try our best to get through Esther chapter 5 all the way to the start of chapter 8. So we won't be able to touch everything, but I hope and trust that we'll be able to cover a lot. And to help us with our narrative tonight, we're really going to say, see three major themes play out in those chapters in the book of Esther. The first thing that we see in Esther is that God is working through judgment. Point one, judgment. And we see judgment specifically roll out by tracking with Haman. Now, who is Haman? Remember, he is a descendant from Agag. That's how he's introduced. Haman, the Agag. Red flag. Every time. Uh, and he's identified as the enemy of the Jews with that introduction. But I want you to notice two things about Haman from our reading today. First, his pride. Turn your eyes with me to chapter 5, verse 11. It says, And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, and the number of his sons, all the promotions which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I invited by her together with the king. He's stoked, isn't he, about the invitation from Esther to go to this party. But if we keep reading, Esther had other plans for her invitation. We'll get to that as the sermon goes on. But the second thing I want you to notice about Haman is his hatred towards Mordecai. Did you notice that in the, in the, in the reading? Uh, if we cast our eyes to chapter 5, verse 13, it says, Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his, Haman's wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Well, what does pride and hatred get you? An evil plan. 
Now, it's interesting, Haman already had an evil plan, didn't he? To annihilate, to kill all the Jews. That would have included Mordecai. But Haman wants to go specifically for Mordecai, doesn't he? He doesn't like the guy. Time to get rid of him. And sadly, we see this play out today, these type of tactics. If a powerful person doesn't like someone because of their pride, fear, hatred towards them, and if they can't intimidate them into submission or manipulate them to get their way, well, what's left? Bully, gaslight, fire them, kick them out of church, bring false charges against them. It's heartbreaking to see. And if you're in that moment, you can't help but say, how long, Lord? In Esther, the evil Haman's plan was to hang Mordecai from the gallows. It's sort of building to a Haman versus Mordecai main event, Jews versus Amalekites. It's sort of a reenactment from something earlier in the Bible found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, it's worthwhile just pausing here for a moment. Zach, we're in Esther. Why are we opening up a book called 1 Samuel? Well, can I just commend spending time in God's word uh, with a commentary open and actually tracing the whole storyline from the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. It brings the Bible into color for us. It's not just black and white, but actually color. And we can see how God's working throughout the Bible to fulfill his promises in Jesus. So right now we're in Esther, but we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 15 to help us better understand what's happening in Esther chapter 5. Now the words will be on the screen. You don't have to flick there, but you're welcome too. Now, as I mentioned, Mordecai, descendant of King Saul, Haman, descendant of Agag. Uh, now the King Saul, which is written about in 1, 1 Samuel, now, his role, the role of a biblical king, is to hear the word of God and do it. Now, the words are on the screen. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel, opposing them on the way up when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have done. That's God's word to Saul, to destroy the Amalekites. Now Saul did defeat the Amalekites, but then in verse 9, uh, it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, that's what they devoted to destruction. Now question for the audience, did Saul do what God commanded him? No, he spared Agag. He broke God's word. Uh, now, four weeks ago, I gave Sam, who's on slides, one of our youth at the back, uh, a, a, a brief intro into what this sermon is going to be about and just the irony about this moment in 1 Samuel 15. And I asked him, can you find a movie for me that best encapsulates what's going on here? And, and thankfully, last weekend, he delivered now, hands up, who's watched Lord of the Rings here? Yeah, many people. Now, I know some people haven't. This will be quick. Stay with me. But Lord of the Rings is all about a ring. Uh, it's, it's Sauron's quest to get this one ring of power to conquer Middle-earth. Uh, if you've watched the trilogies, the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, it really centers on Frodo Baggins, and he is defended by a guy called Aragorn. 
All right, you get the picture. But many, many, many generations ago, Aragorn, so the descendant of Aragorn, his name is, I will have to check my notes, his name is Isildur, and Isildur had a chance to destroy the ring. Uh, but Isildur failed to destroy the ring. He got lured into the ring, and thus the ring was alive. The ring passed down, and we have the Lord of the Rings. If only Isildur did what he was supposed to do. Back in the Bible, I hope you can see the irony. If King Saul did what he was supposed to do, Haman never heard of the guy, but he failed to do God's word. Saul had breaking, broken God's word and sinned against God. And this is a great illustration of what, what sin is. Sin is failing to do what God has told us to do, failing to honor God as our ruler, rejecting God and deciding to live our lives our way. Can you see it in Saul's life? Can you see it in your own life? We don't honor God and obey him as our ruler, and we follow the schemes, the desires, and our own priorities. Now, what follows sin? It's God's judgment. For King Saul, it was, and we can read about this, still in 1 Samuel 15, verse 10, it says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And judgment comes upon Saul and the crown is taken away. Saul is king no more. Now that's King Saul. But how about judgment in Esther? Uh, well, there are interesting things in chapter 6, which we will touch on later. But jumping to chapter 7, which we haven't heard read yet, we find Esther, the king, and Haman at that feast, which we had heard about. And in Esther chapter 7, verse 2, it says, And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, it's a repeated option, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. It's quite an offer, isn't it? Verse 3, Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Asherus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And remember, Esther invited him to this party. It continues in verse 6. And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Even though people can cover up their plots, cover up their tracks, get away with evil for days or for years, either in this life or at the end of time, their wickedness their evil plans will be exposed. The king is angered. And from verse 9, we read in Esther chapter 7, Then Habona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. 
So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king was abated. The evil Haman is dead, and God is bringing about his justice, fulfilling his plans, bringing that Saul and Agag story to a close in this moment. Now today, we live in a different time to the Old Testament, and we can't expect to see judgment roll out the exact same way as we read about in the Old Testament. But today, we all experience a type of God's judgment through suffering and death. The reality is, is that suffering and death are a result of sin entering the world, and it is God's judgment towards us. But God makes no promises today to judge an evil deed done today, tomorrow. You get the picture? God doesn't make that promise. The wisdom literature in the Bible tells us that. But sin is still sin. And while judgment might not play like it did in the Old Testament, God cares enough about taking our rebellion seriously. God cares how we treat him. God cares how we treat others. And he won't let our rebellion go on forever. There is just judgment coming. And like how Haman, how his evil deeds that he was able to cover up for a short period of time were exposed at the feast, our evil deeds too will be exposed at the end of time. And we will have to be accounted for. You will stand before God and give an account to him of your life. And it is a terrible thing to fall under the sentence of God's judgment. We're all guilty of rebelling against God. Now, by way of application, first, we should seek out justice in this world, but we know that ultimately justice will be delivered by God. He is the just judge, and he will judge rightly for people's evil deeds. Uh, you don't have to go there now, but words will be on the screen from 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The second application, knowing that judgment is coming, is that we turn from our sin and we turn to God. He is waiting for people to repent. We turn from our evil deeds and turn to Christ. Now, we started today asking that question, how long, Lord? Verse 10 in 2 Peter, uh, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Are you ready for that day? Where the works on heaven and earth will be exposed. The reality is, left to our own devices, no one is ready for that day. But through judgment comes salvation. That's our second point today. Point one, judgment. Point two, salvation. Now, those two points have been split up, but salvation through judgment is actually key to understanding not just what's happening here in Esther, but big parts of the whole Bible. You see, we see it in the flood in Genesis. God judged but saved some. We see it in the Exodus out of Egypt. God judged Pharaoh, Egyptians, but saved his people. And we see it here in Esther. 
Against all expectations, God judges Haman. It's a great reversal of what should have taken place. Haman is hanged on the gallows he built for Mordecai. And what does this lead to? It leads to God's people being saved. Now, it's hard not to preach the end of the book of Esther. I could do it in one big sermon. Uh, but in Esther chapter 9, we read, On the very day where the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. God is at work through saving, through judgment. It's important to see how God protected and cared for his people in Esther, but it's all the more important to see that God has cared and protected his people at the cross of Christ, where judgment takes place and God's people are saved. You see, tonight we've spent some time considering evil deeds of people external to us. But what about our evil deeds? Really lends the question to ask, how does God save sinners? Well, how does God save sinners? He saves us at the cross of Christ. But to understand what's taking place at the cross of Christ, we need to understand and have this doctrine of belief called penal substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? Well, penal means that there's a penalty for sin. Uh, God takes our sin seriously. Substitution, God provides a substitute so that we may be saved. Our sin may be atoned for. We may be at one with God once again. And you can see on the words on the screen here, there's a brilliant book which I commend to us called Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. It's quite a thick book, but this is a brilliant quote from it to help us understand penal substitutionary atonement. The quote says... The wrath of God against sin is indeed central to the doctrine of penal substitutionary and propitiation helps readers understand that Jesus turns aside the wrath of sin towards himself and away from sinners who trust in him. There is not propitiation without wrath and therefore there is no atonement of sin without biblical propitiation. But thanks be to God that in the Bible we read the remarkably good news that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin, the one who takes the wrath of God in our place for our sin. In doing so, God remains just in that sin is not left unpunished, but also the justifier of those who trust in Jesus. Penal substitutionary atonement is really God's love shown towards us at the cross. The only way we can stand on the day of the Lord, on the incoming judgment, is by standing in Christ. Uh, now today, uh, many Christians have something of a superficial idea of God's love. Uh, you may have heard, God is love. I hope you have. It's a true statement. I hope you hear it often. But what's the contents of that statement? What does it mean that God is love? Well, it's important to understand that the New Testament turns us to the cross of Christ when talking about the love of God. To understand the love of God, we have to understand the cross. Understand that at the cross, Jesus, God, takes our sin seriously. The unblemished lamb, Jesus, who knew no sin, took on our sin, dying in our death as a substitute. It would be unloving to let sin go unpunished. We take, so God takes our sin seriously. So we should take our sin to God, 
knowing that Christ has paid it all as our substitute, dying the death that we deserve in our place so that we may be one with God. Uh, There's a beautiful quote on the screen by a man called John Stott, who's perhaps one of the most influential modern-day Anglicans. Uh, he, He wrote this, and it says, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. It's a beautiful quote that shows something of the love of God on display at the cross of Christ. And if we don't take what God has done seriously at the cross, then we are at risk of dulling the glittering diamond of God's love. By way of application for us today, some here are hiding their sin, covering up their sin, having guilt, shame. Can I encourage you to take it to God? See that your sin is great, but Jesus is greater. And he has done something about it. Point one, judgment. Point two, salvation. And the last point for us to consider this evening is point three, glory. We pick it up in Esther chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. It says, On that day, King Asherus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now I want you to consider this question. Who gets the glory in these passages? Casting your eyes over them. Esther? Yes. But even more, Mordecai. He is given the king's signet ring, which actually is a big deal in the next couple of chapters, which we'll consider at a future date. And he is placed over the house of his enemy. Mordecai is honored. But let's not have a superficial reading of this text and make Mordecai the absolute hero of the story. Because did you, did you see God in those verses? Did you hear God in our story tonight? No? Well, good. He's not mentioned in the story, as I mentioned at the start. He's not mentioned in the book of Esther. But today, as we read the book of Esther, we can see his handiwork providentially caring for his people. Now, I mentioned at the start, there was all these coincidences in chapters 1 to 4. Just to list off a few, Esther just happens to be beautiful, which suited the king. She just happens to be Jewish, God's people, which proved to be a big in her decision-making later in the chapters. Esther just happens to be favored by the king. Mordecai is always, as you read the book of Esther, is at the right place at the right time. And he discovers this plot that saves the king's life. And Mordecai, what he's done is written into the Chronicles. And now in Esther chapter 6, which we had to sort of skip over, we read that in verse 1, On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave the orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles. And they were read before the king. And what did he find? Another coincidence. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Asherus. That is a lot of coincidences in the book of Esther. 
The coincidences continued tonight. I won't recount all of them, but all these coincidences in Esther has led Gordon McConville, a key professor in Old Testament theology, to write the story of Esther can therefore become a powerful statement about the reality of God in a world from which he appears to be absent. Now, while God is hidden in this story, there was no, and God judged Haman. We can see that God is in control, caring for his people, protecting them, saving them, his people, through judgment. And indeed, God gets the glory in Esther. Now, uh, I invite you, if you've got a Bible with you, to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, which is a book found in the New Testament, and the words likewise will be on the screen if you don't have one. But Philippians chapter 2 is perhaps well known for its writing about the example of Christ's humility. You may be familiar with these verses, starting from verse 8. And being found in human form, Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that's something what we've been talking about tonight, isn't it? He humbled himself to take on the penalty of our sin in our place as a substitute, dying our death that we deserve. But I wonder if you have noticed the theme of glory in verses 9 to 11. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is where human history is going. This is the closure we are longing for. This is what closure looks like. Jesus is exalted. God is glorified. God's glory in salvation through judgment. There's our three points in a sentence. There's three points to remind us of and to see it throughout the Bible, not just in Esther chapter 5 to 8. God gets the glory in salvation through judgment. Now to close out this evening... Uh, and I also invite Eva to, to come up. Uh, in Esther this evening, we have seen judgment roll out. The evil Haman killed. And God working to save his people. Esther and Mordecai were honoured. But we've been reminded that God is the true hero of this story. And at Christ Our Refuge, we want to be known as gospel people. And if you were with us last week, uh, Dave actually kicked off a sermon series called Gospel People, which he'll be continuing next week as he looks at gospel culture. But one of the traits of a gospel person is gospel confidence. Not because we are inherently confident people, but because of the confidence that the gospel gives us. We can have gospel confidence. And I think having closure gives us confidence today, gives us confidence to live for the Lord today. The fact that God has been caring for his people throughout time, as we've seen in Esther, should give us confidence today. The fact that Jesus is our substitutionary death on our behalf, in our place, assures us of our salvation, should give us confidence today. The fact that God alone gets the glory in salvation gives us confidence today that he is working for our good and for his glory. And this gospel confidence helps us to be patient 
to be to endure as we call out, how long, Lord? Knowing that in the, in the weights that we have the muck and the gunk to deal with right now, we know the ending of the story. So let us be a people with confidence that the gospel gives us. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we rejoice in your greatness and power, your patience and love, your mercy and justice. We thank you that you have told us how the story ends, that Jesus is exalted. We thank you for the lessons from Esther chapter 5 and 8, that though you were seemingly hidden, silent in these verses, that you were indeed providentially caring for your people. And ultimately, you were at work to get, bring about glory in salvation through judgment. Help us, Lord, to take our sin seriously, to turn from it, to bring it to you, knowing that you have taken it seriously at the cross, that you have done something about it, that we can be assured of your love and kindness towards us. Help us to trust in this all the more. And Lord, we ask that you may glorify yourself in our lives today, this week, for our good and for your glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.